A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. And uh, we have an unusually packed show for you today. The ICEC report has been released with it finding that racism and misogyny are entrenched in the game. We'll get the take of The Cricketer magazine's senior writer, George Durbell. England will look to bounce back, obviously, from last week's defeat in uh, the first test match at Edgbaston um, against Australia at Lords in the second test this week. We'll hear exclusively from England pairs Zach Crawley and Ollie Pope, as well as get the thoughts of Australia's duo Mitchell Stark and Marnus Labuschagne. Georgie Heath will join us to reflect on a thrilling five-day test in the women's ashes, and we'll take a look at some of the latest transfer news in county cricket. And we'll end the show by looking back at the World Cup qualifiers in Zimbabwe as the West Indies looks certain to miss this year's World Cup in India. And Nathan Johns from the Irish Times will ask what next for Ireland after their shock exit. So, an awful lot to come over the next hour. You're listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. Right, well, let's uh, kick off with the release of what I think is an explosive report by the Independent Commission for Equality in Cricket, which has reached some damning findings. Basically, racism and misogyny widespread in the game. There are a lot of uh, of, of numbers and figures that the Independent Commission um, and a lot of pages in their report as well. And it's um, pretty shocking. And the ECB chair, Richard Thompson, has said that they will use the report to reset cricket. And, well, a man who knows a great deal more about this and, and will be able to reflect on its potential impact uh, than me and Harmy is the senior writer uh, for the Cricketer magazine and no stranger, I'm delighted to say, to this programme anyway. But George, um, Harmi and I rely on you to um, add some perspective. First of all, how surprised were you by the findings of the the commission? Well, that's an interesting one because I've actually found reading it quite shocking. I did, but probably I shouldn't have done. I, I vaguely, broadly knew what was coming. But even, you know, I've done quite a lot of work on the racism side of this in the last couple of years but if you you read it you read these people's testimony of what they've experienced and it 
it is shocking and it probably should remain shocking. So I found it quite upsetting. And that's probably the appropriate response. And I, I, I mean that on, on all levels. The misogyny thing I, I, I'm not as um, knowledgeable about. I'm still learning about it. And, and yeah, the um, one of the things I really like about the report is the, the language used. There's no messing around. They're straight in there with, with exactly how they feel. It's very clear. And they use words like shocking and ashamed and embarrassing and disgusted. And uh, and I think that's appropriate. I think that's where we where we should be. And I think that lots of us have, have suspected that it was going to be bad, uh, but it really lays it clear. There's uh, a lot of work gone into this. And hopefully it will make it much harder for people to deny the extent of the problem from now. Hopefully we move on from the people who don't want the game to change. We leave them behind. Yeah, you talk about leaving people behind and it said mm. that the jaw-dropping, eye-opening, your mouth-opening aware of this report has hit the game. You say try and move on and you know, look forward and light at the end of the tunnel. Is this the light at the end of the tunnel moment? Are we at you- rock bottom? Are we are we can we only see a small light, but that small light will get closer and closer as time goes on, as Richard Thompson says. Are okay. we Good, good, good question. I'm going to say um, I'm more optimistic than that, but I'm going to say again, through the prism of being the the middle-aged middle-class white fella, the only person in this sort of group that is not discriminated against, you know, so I'm reading from people of colour, women, people from uh, socioeconomic circumstances, which make it all difficult. I, I didn't really have any of those problems. Yeah. So I say it through that prism that actually I think this is a step forward. More difficult was a few years ago when people were reporting problems that had been ignored. So more difficult is when Azeem first goes to Yorkshire and say, look, I'm feeling I've been discriminated against and they ignore him. More difficult is when he first goes to to Wisdom Online and does the piece and Yorkshire ignore him. Uh, More difficult in the cases, several of which I've been dealing with, people who reported their concerns. There's an amazing cut and dry case where a guy who worked for the ECB for many years reported his concerns and was immediately made redundant. His case is dismissed. He didn't want it to go public. I would love him to go public, you know, but he doesn't want to. Those things are rock bottom, Harvey. Those moments when we're not acknowledging the problem. But right now we've got a diagnosis. And if you've got a diagnosis, maybe you can start to to find a cure. And I I think this, this report is valuable and positive and actually, yes, I see um, I see grounds for optimism now, as long as we work together to, to try and make things better. You have been, obviously, at the forefront of um, working with Azim Rafiq and, and his case. And I, I find it very hard to believe that anybody would actually try reasonably to deny that uh, there is racism in the game. And there has been for a long time. Um, you mentioned socioeconomic backgrounds. I do find can it I, can, I, can I just interrupt you there for a second? I don't think many people, a tiny minority, would would deny that there was some racism in the game. I mean, I do have messages that say this, but most people would, would try and say, and I'll give you a classic example. When um, we first reported the stuff about Yorkshire, I think they pretty much just wanted to blame Gary Balance because he was decent enough to admit to various things. And so it seemed to me that there was an attempt to say, one bad apple, it's a bad apple which he's not, by the way, he, he's mixed up and confused, but he, he was honest and decent enough to admit things, to apologise to Azeem in person. And it felt as if 
there were many people in the game who wanted to pin it on him. What this report does is it makes it clear that it's not about bad apples. The whole damn system's rotten. It's rotten to its core. It's not individuals. Uh, that, that's actually, I just wanted to, to pull you up on that. So I don't think anyone's denying, to be clear, that there are individual elements of racism in the game. The point I think that we need to make is the system, the structure of the game, excludes. It is built to exclude. And I think quite a lot of people quite like it that way. I, I think they like that their clubs are elitist. And I think the MCC is an example of that. I think the one thing I'm, I'm, we're learning and learning more and more about this report, but the private school elite backgrounds, I don't think you can get away from, especially in the last sort of 10, 15 years, because I think we've got, I think, a system which up until, you know, probably 24, 48 hours ago was was definitely broken. And is is it on the mend? How do we get to the next step, George? Well, that's a really, really good point. So there are recommendations in the report, uh, 44 of them. And um, one of the more eye-catchy ones was the call for quality of pay for, for women cricketers. And I know that, that that's, that's, that's going to be desperately difficult. You know, it's difficult for the game to afford, but it's the right thing to do, isn't it? And uh, th- there are lots of equally difficult, but I know you were kind of vaguely involved in this, maybe, Harmi, when in your brief spell at Yorkshire, when... Uh, Kamish Patel came in and he said, we're going to make the pathway free for kids. And this is a classic example of uh, a really good policy, I think. At the moment, as you're probably aware, a a kid gets spotted and the club says, brilliant, come and join us for coaching. That'll be 250 quid a year plus 200 quid for kid. Figures are a bit random. But you can see immediately how that excludes. You aren't far Uh, off. And and Kamish Patel came in and said, straight away, we're we're stopping that. Uh, and, And immediately... You're making the club more accessible. Now, it's expensive. It, it's very difficult to do at a time when costs are going up 10% because of inflation, that the income isn't going up. It's difficult, but it's the right thing to do. Now, I think the game will do it. I think the game will embrace it. I actually never said this before. Believe in the current leadership of the ECB. Uh, there are a substantial upgrade of what's gone before. They, they've inherited a very difficult hand. This is a tricky position for them. But um, the fact that uh, Sidney Butts and her team have uh, laid out some recommendations and also laid out quite a lot of proof, uh, they've they've shown their workings, if you like. I Mm. think that gives them pretty good grounds to uh, take the game with them on the difficult journey that's ahead. And I've got, this is a difficult question to ask, but I've got to ask it because I keep getting people talk about context, which is, nonsense talk about dragging things up what happened 20 years ago which is nonsense that's probably the reason why we're in the position we're in because of what happened 20 years ago with the way people were talking and what people said will there be people talk about this commit the way this has been put up as we've had 4,000 people respond because the call was for them 4,000 people as opposed to the call for the other side as well right well so so not everyone who has uh, spoken to this commission is is a, a person of colour or or a woman. Um, it, it, has, it was open for everyone to speak to, and they clearly have, because uh, I've read all of it now, all 300 pages, and uh, the, the views of the sort of, I want to use bad words, uh, but the, the, the views of the people who, who, who are resistant to change are included in there. You know, they, they, there's a section on the commission 
disputing we're talking about the term woke and actually actually embracing it i would say they said they they say we want to be woke uh, that's what we are and uh, people who say there's no racism in the game are the problem and they are the problem they are they are deniers i mean azim has obviously put up with this stuff for a very very long time you know being uh, having his views diminished and um, denied even and uh, there will still be people who do that we know that but there are still people who say that Trump won the election. And as soon as they say it, we sort of know what to think about them, don't we? So we now have a body of work. We have a, you know, a sort of quasi-academic study with facts and figures and proof. And if people want to sort of deny it, burn books, deny facts, we know where they are. And that's one of the great things about this subject, you know. Uh, as you said, Harmi, and I think we've talked about this before, both of us have learned masses from it. Yeah. Uh, and I'm a wee bit older than you, I think, and, uh, and would admit that um, certainly I've made mistakes uh, and will probably no doubt continue to, but I've learnt masses and, and want to be better. And that's one of the key things in this. There are people who admit they want to improve and learn more, and there are people who think they don't need to change. And one of the great things about this is people reveal themselves. On this subject, everyone eventually reveals themselves. And I found that um, terribly helpful. George, the question I wanted to ask um, was whether you think there needs to be government in- intervention um, or sports department intervention. Or... I do. It's also fundamentally against the ICC constitution, isn't it, that the, the government can't run cricket. But that aside, is English cricket able to self-govern and, and sort well, this no, out? Well, no, it's been proved it can't, I think. Uh, and actually, I did say this when I appeared before the DCMS Select Committee a few months ago, that the the disciplinary part of the ECB has failed horribly. You know, the fact that it takes years to get anything in front of it, the years for investigations to happen. I can absolutely guarantee without boring you with the detail that the CDC is a complete joke of the organisation. Nonsense. And, and the people convicted would say that. Everyone would say that, really, who's had experience of it. So, no, I think the game has had quite a long time to try and resolve this. And it's failed to do it. Now, it's a very difficult subject. And actually, I would say that the PCA seemed to get off quite lightly uh, from this report, but that's okay. So, yes, I think some government involvement in helping the ECB come up with some sort of disciplinary body that is independent. Because, Manners, the word independent is the most misused in sport, probably in society. Most things that claim they're independent aren't. And uh, we really need an independent body. I'll say something which will be controversial and I'll hate it. But the CDC takes the path of least resistance every time I've ever had any dealings with it. So I I think it's awful. I think it should be hung out to dry. I I, I could go. I don't want to bore you. I don't want to. But um, yes, I think government help. They're not running the sport. They're just helping with the disciplinary branch of the sport. Uh, and let's remember that um, Yorkshire, we're going to find out maybe by the time this goes out, we'll know what the Yorkshire penalties are. I can tell you, Yorkshire are going to get the mother of all points penalties, yeah? And here we are in, what, the end of June. They've spent a fortune on overseas players and what have you. It's a complete waste of time. So there's not a can hell's chance of them uh, getting promoted. Why not do it months ago? This has been going on. When did when did Nazim first report problems? 2017 or 18? It's June yeah. 2023. George, on a subject that you don't like talking about, uh, yourself, I'm very curious to know how how you're doing. And I think it's, I also want to make the point to our listeners that I I have it on reasonably good authority that a lot of people have approached you directly, rather than wanting to face a commission or, you know, following your your work with Azim Rafiq, I I know that 
that people have approached you directly with some some horrible stories and you know and and you've tried your best to 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 help wherever you can uh, and you know I just imagine that must have been quite a massive weight on your shoulders I mean I know, I know that you're a privileged middle-aged white man and you can cope but hmm. but I mean this has been a challenging time for you it's been my pleasure to help honestly I, I, I it's not about me at all uh and it genuinely when anyone opens up and trusts you in the way that Azim did or other people have done in the past, even when I did Trotty's book or working with Moeen in the past, it's an incredibly privileged position. And I feel very lucky. Uh, there was a period when I was getting calls, which I very much wasn't uh, qualified to deal with. Uh, that was difficult, yeah. And, and, and those calls sort of go on and you establish relationships with some people. Yeah, I, and, and I feel very lucky that I've been trusted in that way. There is a certain level of trauma, which is difficult. And, and maybe it sort of creeps into your soul a little bit. But I think that uh, generally I feel very lucky. Uh, the, the, the thing is with that, that most people didn't want to complain. Uh, they didn't want to report their complaints. I asked many of them to. And they didn't want to go public with stories. They just wanted someone to listen. Uh, so... And, and, and a very rare example, because very rarely were people angry. Jahid uh, from Essex was angry, and I loved his anger. It was a terrific energy. And, and he wanted to go public, and he wanted me to do stuff, and, and, we, and we did. But I, I, the, the tone of voice was resigned very often and sad. And so when you asked what I thought of the report, there was a lot of people saying, they couldn't be bothered to report stuff because they'd completely lost trust with the game. I found that a lot. Uh, and I don't blame them because uh, there were so many people I urged to go through, jump through every hoop and their cases were dismissed or not listened to. And what happens is they're, they're stretched out for two years and they say, well, look, can you, can you get a lawyer to write this response? And like, no, I can't afford a lawyer. And I tried to get pro bono lawyers involved who did brilliant things. Mayor Brown, bless them. Uh, Amjad Khan, God bless him. Uh, the, the, these people worked incredibly hard to try and help people. But uh, the game took every opportunity to stretch out the process and make people give up. They either couldn't afford it or they were going mad or they were just too sad to continue. And it happened again and again and again. And this is why I'm so full of respect for Azim. Azim has been such a force of good for the game. And I know loads of people hate him. I know, but you don't know him. <laughs> and I do. And he's a, he's a, a great man. And we're so lucky that he's done what he's done because so much of this other stuff wouldn't have followed. He did break down barriers and he was so brave and determined to do it because uh, it was desperately hard. So honestly, man, as I, I consider it a huge privilege to have helped him. And, and I'd be lying if I said there weren't days when I wished I hadn't picked up the phone that day because <laughs> uh, it definitely changed my life. But um, no, I've got no regrets about that, really. George, enjoy the Lord's Test match. Mitchell Stark was telling us earlier that uh, that even if he doesn't play, he's looking forward to the lunches. But I'm I, I'm <laughs> serious. Um, it's been it's, your work has been massively appreciated, and I yeah, yeah. that's really kind. That's really kind, uh, and I know that we haven't always agreed. You know, me and Harmy haven't always agreed on everything, but um, I think we've always sort of uh, respected each other's point of view and honesty. Uh, yeah. And I and I very much appreciate that. Thank you, thank you for having me on. Real pleasure, George Debell from the Cricketer Magazine. Uh, you're listening to the Cricket Collective on Talksport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. 
Hami, um, lots of places to begin, but let's start with Rian Ahmed. Called up as cover for Moeen. Will he play? No, I don't think he'll play. I think Moeen's going to play. I think it looks at, it looks as though well, by reports are saying Moen is bowling and this this week. So if Moen's bowling, it means he's going to be he's going to be fit. If he's fit, he plays. Simple as that. Um, either had Riyad Ahmed in the squad for the whole series and do what they do with the likes of Dan Lawrence and one or two others. Just when they've got a game, Leicester have got a game. Give, you know, throw him back in play, to play, but every other day be around the England cricket team. So I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's quite a good thing the young man's involved in the squad. Would he play? I'd be very, very surprised. If it was a fourth test match and we, won, and we were down in a series, then yes, I probably would chuck him in. But I think if, even if Mo and Ali's not fit, I think your fourth seamer would be a game changer as well because it would be Mark Wood. Then I think I think Mark Wood needs to get into the series before Riyad Ahmed does. So I would, I still think Mark Wood should play, but I think it looks like Mo Ali is going to be fit to bowl, and if he's fit to bowl, he plays. It's as simple as that. We could do a whole episode on Ollie Robinson and the reaction that he's caused, particularly in the Australian camp and former Australian players, particularly a real bee in their bonnet about about Ollie Robinson. But would he be the man to make way for Mark Wood? I think there's a chance. Part of me would say I wouldn't do I wouldn't leave Matt for that reason that he's done he not done his job. I thought I thought Jimmy Anderson and, and, and Ollie Robinson looked as though they hadn't bowled for it for a month going into that test match. I think you're looking at now Stuart Broad is you can't drop Stuart Broad. So if you're gonna Moen's gonna be fit, you play Robinson or Anderson. Still think you've got to play Anderson. Just it's as simple as that. And I don't know what the surface is gonna be like. There is an argument that you did we want to really want to run the risk of playing Jimmy in this game and then him obviously be tired or taking a lot out of his body and we get three days of overhead conditions perfect for Anderson at, at Headingley? Do you want to run the risk? But Ben seems to want to pick the best team for this next game. It wouldn't surprise me, you know, Manners, with this group, they'll pick the same side. If Ben Ben Stokes wins a toss, goes for bat first on on Wednesday morning, um, and it's the same team. That would not surprise me. I think they need a little extra. I really think they need Mark Wood to play. Where you leave out, you probably are looking at Robinson because it would have been the shootout being Broad or Robinson because they bring the similar sort of type tall bowlers hit the deck with that, that sort of in and around that off stump. Pound drop Stewart after last week, performance has shown that he is, but... Robinson's record has been fantastic, and his and his attitude is fantastic. I've got no problem, Ollie, saying what he says. But what you've got to do is you've got to back it up. I think you put fuel on the Australian former players' fire if you leave him out. So there'll be I'll be cautious. I'll be conscious of that. That you've let this animal loose on Australia, and he's had a lot to say. And to be honest, he, he didn't back it up as much as he probably could have done in the first uh, first test match. I'd be reminding him of that and throwing him straight back in for Lord. So I would not surprise me if England go with the same side. You said Broad and Anderson looked short of a run. Mark Wood hasn't played a red ball game for three months. He hasn't, but we need something different. In this attack, we need something different. Ben's bold, but Ben's nowhere near as explosive as what he was a year ago, two years ago, and the younger Ben Stokes. So I just think we need we need that little bit extra. I think we need the injection of pace. If we don't have it here, we'll have to have it games two, three, F, 
sort of three, four and five. And I think that's something that I think England have got to be mindful of, of saying, yes, we need to pick the best team we think for the next test match. But these test matches come awfully thick and fast and they come very, very quickly upon each other. We've had our little break. The only break that we get in the series is, was last week. Now, I think we've got to be careful now of where we go and making sure we have enough firepower and resources to play four test matches in such a short space of time. With the mind being mindful that we are losing, we are one nil down. So if we if we put the same side and we lose, go two nil down at Lords, and I know if some butts and we all we can look at the negative, but if we pick the same side and we lose and we are two nil down going to Lords, you're basically saying Mark Wood has to play three back to back test matches for us to win the series to win the Ashes. That's an ask. So for me, I think you play a Mark Wood because you need an extra firepower. You sacrifice one of your your other bowlers, possibly it would be Robinson, and then you try and plan accordingly for trying how to win this game, and then you you, you would might get rested at Heavenly, where if overhang conditions come into play, you might not need the, the, the sort of express pace because lateral movement will come naturally through the, the atmosphere. Okay, Harmi, very quickly, before we hear from Zach Crawley and Ollie Pope, you know Johnny Bairstow, he's a robust character, but after the mm. mistakes he made, um, with the gloves in Edgebaston, do you think he's feeling bullish or fragile at the moment? I think both. I think Johnny will know that. And for all this larger-than-life character and sort of brazen on the field and you know the way he plays is so explosive with the bat, he is fragile. I think we've seen that in passages of his career where mentally he's he's found it tough at times. And he's not, I'm not saying he's taking the water in, not for one minute but he's human and Johnny's got a good heart. Johnny's a great kid with a good heart. And Johnny will feel last week that, you know, there was times and and, and and catches, he probably could have done better. But I think on that front, I think we've also got to remember that he hasn't kept for such a long period of time. The injury was so severe. He missed a lot of cricket and a lot of time off. You know, he had a lot of time off. So I judge him at the end of the series and not after just one test match. And I think that's what I think England will. I think I'm looking at this group and I'm going, there's there's 17 men in this squad. England are playing, for me, they're playing with 12. That's all they're playing with. They're playing with 12. And if Mo and Ali gets injured, then the, the 13th man is Riyad Armand that comes in like for like. Top seven are going nowhere. They're going to play all five test matches. And you've got you've got three from four of Broad, Anderson, Robinson and Wood. And that's the 12 I think England are playing for. You look at the, the rest of the squad... Lawrence is not getting a game. Wokes is not getting a game for me. I don't think so. Potts is not getting a game. And neither's Tung, unless England are really... You know, Tung might get a game if England go 2-0 down. So might Riyad Ahmed and, and, and Mark Wood. We have to go gamble. Bang, there you go. But this minute in time, England have got a 17-man squad. And for me, they're only picking from 12. But the interesting one for me is who they leave out for this one. Because for me, and if I was in selector, and I've tried that job to go for it, I'd be pushing that we need that little bit of injection of Pierce. You had your way at Edgebaston, didn't work. As much as it was a great game of cricket, there were passages in that game where we could have done with an extra quick bowler. Don't make that mistake at Lords. We'll see. Um, but right now, time to hear from um, England pair Zach Crawley and Ollie Pope. They've been looking ahead to the uh, second test and speaking with Talk Sports' Sam Ellard. 
Yeah, I don't think any of the players on the Aussie side cared. Um, uh, he went out to bat after that and didn't get any stick, apparently. And you know, and there, other than that, there wasn't much sledging in the whole game. So I mean, I, I think it was overrated a little bit. But um, you know, you, like you say, you want to see that competitiveness. It's a big game, and you know, people get fired up. And um, Ollie's very competitive himself, mm. and so is Kawaja. I'm sure he's extremely competitive. So I don't think there was any um, any problem with it. And it was just a shame it got caught on camera, I suppose. That's sure. the only reason. Other than that, it wouldn't have been mentioned. Yeah, he didn't get in his face, did he, or anything? No, like I think it? that's the main thing. It wasn't like he ran up to him and yeah. said it. And that, that stuff happens in every single game. But yeah. I think just because it's Nash's series, I think you just know the spotlight's on you the whole time. So if you do do something, then oh, it creates more tension. You boys live your best lives, aren't you, right? Is this honestly like, you know... You're playing for England, an amazing team that's had so much success. There's so many eyes on cricket. Like, is this literally, this is the dream, right? Ashes series at home. Do you feel, do you feel like you're living your best life? This is what it's all about? Yeah, it's special. I mean, this is a really, this is, you know, probably the favourite, my favourite time in my career so far. Definitely, in fact. And, um, you know, that's, that's thanks to the, the leadership in our group that are allowing us to enjoy it like we are at the moment. And um, long may it continue. Yeah. I mean, Stokes as captain is, what he's done, Ollie, is pretty magical, right? Absolutely, and he's got he's got such a good cricket brain. I think it all, mm. all looks a bit maverick sometimes. Yeah. And now we go out and smack it, try to take twenty wickets. But the way in which he talks to us as a team, and the way in which he goes about his his field settings, his bowling, uh, and his the way he picks sort of helps pick teams is is well thought out. He's got a, he's got an amazing cricket brain. So it's actually there's a lot more to it than it looks, but it's a lot of fun. More method to the madness than yeah. perhaps yeah, but it's a lot of fun in yeah. the way, which is the main thing. Zach Crawley and Ollie Pope talking to uh, Talk Sports Sam Ellard. Australia have a very good record at Lords, of course, and uh, there's been lots of talk about uh, the only change they could possibly make to their team, and that's bringing Mitchell Stark in for, for Scott Boland. This is what Stark had to say, speaking with our very own Scott Taylor. Mitchell, thanks for speaking to us on TalkSport. You've seen the way England have played their test cricket in the last 12 months or so. Are you relishing the challenge of the England batters coming at you? Is that something you, you rise to? Oh, I think you you want that challenge every week of playing a test test match. Um, doesn't matter who it's against, where it's at, um, or the way they're playing their cricket. So uh, I think that's been a you know a feature of this group is he's not looking too far ahead. Um, we're here at Lords; it's an exciting place to be and play cricket. You know we're coming off a good week, but we know we can play better cricket. And, and you know the way that England are playing their cricket, they're going to come as hard, if not harder. So um, if I do get the chance, it's going to be an exciting week. If not, it's um, the lunches here are pretty good too. <laughs> and and you look at the bowling attack for Australia, you're all over 30 now. How much are you thinking about legacy and how much more motivation does that add for this bowling group that could potentially be playing in their last away ashes to become the first Australia side to win an away ashes series in a generation? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, there's certainly more spoken at about it outside the group um, for us it's a chance to go 2-0 up so um, you know it's not it's not lost on us the opportunity we do have some of us this is our fourth trip here and, and you know coming off the back of 19 where we we retain the ashes but missed out on, on winning it um, the carrot's certainly there so certainly for the for the wider group players and staff that have been so close or have you know been here in lost series as well it's um it's it's certainly incentive to to continue the way we're going and and we're certainly not looking too far past just this week. That was Mitchell Stark talking to Scott Taylor, and it wouldn't be a Lord's Test without a mention for the famous lunches. You said all along that he should he should come in for Scott Boland. Yeah, I think he should, and I'll echo the fact that the lunches are unbelievable at, at Lord's, so it's not a bad place to... That's not a, I'm not saying you don't want to miss out, 
but it's always a good place to be a, a, an opening bowler at Lords, especially first session if you can manage to get your six out of the way early and get on before lunch, get a couple in the bag, and then you can have a massive lunch wait 40 minutes and then have a little bit more time in the greys to, to, to sort of let it digest. And hopefully for the series, I think Mitchell Stark is another one, as much as I'm a champion and Mark Wood to play. People have been talking to me and saying, what a great test match this has been. What a fantastic series. I said, it's only going to get better. I said, because both sides, for me, have to have to bring in their 90-mile-an-hour quick boys. And that, for me, is Wood and Stark. So Bowling might miss out. Hazelwood might miss out. They might, they might leave Hazelwood out. He hasn't played for such a long time. I think the logical change for me would be Hazelwood out, Stark in. That brings a 90-mile-an-hour bowler in. It keeps Bowling... <clears throat> Because he looks as though he's, yes, he, he took a little bit of a pounder in that first test, but he looks robust, he looks strong, he'll get overs out of him. And if it goes awry for um, for Mitchell Stark, and he, he, he England uses pace to their advantage and not Australia's advantage, then you know you've got overs in Cummins and in Boland. So for me, I think Australia will make one change. And I think it'll be Josh Hazelwood out and Mitchell Stark in and another mouth-watering proposition for the series, another 90-mile-an-hour-plus bowler, which yeah, he's box office. He is absolute box office. He could go at nine and over for the first six overs of his of his, of his his spell, or he could have England he could have England 20 for three, 20 for four, hooping at round corners. So, again, it's going to be, it's going to be great to watch. I wonder what odds you'd get on Steve Smith and Marnus Labashain totaling 35 runs between them in both innings. Actually, let's hear from Marnus. We played pretty under par to what I think the standard of our teams is at. I mean, I thought from a batting point, Uz was outstanding, but, you know, I think most of the other batters would be, you know, we want to be better than that standard we set. Actually, Alex Kerr is very good as well. But, and, and from a bowling perspective, I think, having our first experience out there of how they're actually going to play. It's a lot. You come in with all these plans of how you're going to do it, but until you're out there and you experience it, it's very hard to go, okay, we're going to do this. Because, you know, the, the, the thought was, well, how are they going to do it against our bowlers on then? And they show they can. They can do it, but it's, you know, with a wicket that might have a little bit more in it, what is it going to look like? And, you know, at the end of the day, we, you know, we, we walk away from the first test 1-0 up. And that's a positive sign for us because I don't think we played at our best. Manus Labashain, um talking about the expected improvement, certainly from him and from Steve Smith. Final word from you, Harmi, on the Lord's pitch then. Is it one of the most consistent and reliable of, of international venues? I mean, how much can you manipulate the Lord's pitch? How much can Ben Stokes get the, the flat, quick wickets that he wanted? I don't think he's getting the flat, quick, quick wickets he's wanted. I think the chief executives are all going to get their own way and... If they get they get the flat pitches that he wanted. Interesting, Jimmy Anderson saying the last pitch at Edge Baston was like kryptonite to him. Um, and if this pitch is going to be like kryptonite to him, the better thing, best thing will be to do leave Jimmy Anderson out and keep him for the later on in the series. If we don't think the pitch is going to going to suit him at all, I think the pitch will have a little bit more pierce in it, a little bit more bounce in it. Um, I'd never leave Jimmy out of Lords because of the slope, because he's so good, so accurate, so skillful. That he can you know, he can use the slope to his advantage, but I can see this being a, a good wicket, a really good cricket wicket to to bat on. Um, that you get and you always get full value for your for your for your shots at Lords, and you have know, the ball flying across the the outfield. And when you use the slope it, to your advantage as a batter, it becomes very daunting and very uh, very difficult for a, a bowler to 
consistently get his line and length. So from that point of view, I can see England coming out swinging again on a good pitch, which was looks as though the the, the weather's going to be set fair and it's going to be decent. Um, and if the ball does come onto the bat a little bit more, then you know hopefully England will have um, enough to this time you know get that scoring rate that little bit quicker what they want if they're going to have these sort of declarations and try and try and steer ahead one one foot ahead of the game. You're listening to the Cricket Collective, as always, here on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and two-time county championship winner, Steve Harmison. Uh, next up, we'll turn our attention to the women's ashes and look back at Australia's thrilling last-day win over England at Trent Bridge. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. If you've missed any of the show or you wish to catch up, you can download the podcast from the following on feed, as always, uh, now available via the free TalkSport app or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's talk women's ashes now. The five-day test match. I've always been advocating five days. I didn't understand why it was only four days. And we needed the fifth day in the end. Georgie... Heath, you've been covering the Test match. It's one of those events that I thought at the end it was probably a real privilege to have been there. I mean, it was an epic Test match in so many ways. You know, England becoming the first team to lose a Test match with a bowler taking a tenfer and uh, and a batter scoring a double hundred. Uh, and I saw your tweet after the game. You said, "Well, that's a sign of how good Australia are." I mean, Ash Gardner also took ten. Uh, what just what a game! I mean, it was one of those, I sort of feel like I have witnessed history. I feel like my blood pressure, I don't know what it's doing at the moment. My my watch woke me up yesterday to tell me my heart rate was too low. And I was like, I think this is probably in comparison to what it's been doing during the day, which has been, who even knows. But 
yeah, I feel like I have witnessed quite a lot of history. It was one of those today, watching Ash Gardner do that. I was like, if I were a neutral, this would just be great because this is a real, you know, real demonstration of some absolute class bowl and real history. And then I was like, I really wish I wasn't English right now because I'm kind of watching something I don't want to see. But it was she was phenomenal, Ash Gardner. Yeah, she picked up 12 wickets in the game, which was just the eight for 66 was just staggering. England... I feel they there will be times they'll think we've really let ourselves down a bit. Sort of the end of day three when they let the two openers. They, I mean, I almost would have liked to bat in that. I mean, I probably would be still be terrible. But it was one of those, they sort of let them have it and they really let them get going in that innings. And then a few of the English batters gave their wickets away, really. Um, Nats Liverbrunt, she had a bit of a swipe. She was caught behind. Yes, she's injured. There, you know, we didn't see her bowl very much. She's got a bit of a dodgy knee. But it's not really an excuse for playing shots like that when England really needed to, they needed them to stick in. Danny Wyatt, absolutely, you know, she's stuck in. She's, weirdly enough, it's still strange to say, you know, Danny Wyatt on debut, um, test debut 13 years after she made her England debut. A strange one, but she, she put in a good effort today. She just needed someone to stick in around her and it just, it just wasn't happening. Ash Gardner, I don't know what she had for breakfast, but I'm going to be having it every time I go out to bowl now. Dodger, there's some there's some great positives for for women's cricket throughout the whole the whole week, five days, decent crowds as well, good crowds and you know fantastic crowd you know today, free entry in and you know the public came out to support and I heard I think it was Catherine Severbrunt who said that Test matches will become less and less because of you know the, the more attraction to white ball cricket. Can there be less test matches? Is this not a and I open it to say what a great spectacle we've had. Yeah, it's it's a weird one, isn't it? Because how is it possible to have less of something we already have so little of? Um, yeah. Someone was asking me today when I left the ground, they were like, when's England's next test match? And I actually don't think there is one scheduled yet. So that's quite an odd one. But it was, the, yeah, the five days was... And I'm also so glad it went to five days. Imagine it would have been so typical. You know, we'd all argued for five days for all this time and it was done in three and a half. But yeah, needing the fifth day was amazing. And actually was pretty good crowd in today to watch that. I mean, they saw him lose, but really good day, especially on a, you know, a Monday morning when people are still at school. So that was great to see. But when you hear any of the players talk, they actually really want to play test cricket. I spoke to Danny Wyatt actually, just as she'd been announced in the squad. And she was like, you know, it's something I've wanted to do. I made my England debut 13 years ago, but you almost feel like you haven't made it still even until you've made that, you know, until you've made a test squad. There were some players, the likes of Alice Capsey, who, you know, she is on the tip of everyone's tongue when we talk about England women's cricket, but she hasn't made it into the test squad yet. And, you know, she wants to do that. And it is still the pinnacle, strangely enough. And maybe because it's so rare it almost makes it even more special like Danny White's had to wait all that time when's the next one going to come around we don't know but um I would love to see more of them if if this one is anything to go by they they could be blockbuster basically but um it's it's a tricky one because there is so much more franchise stuff now as we always say the f word franchise coming up around the world the the Women's Premier League this year, you know, that was great. There's so much money now put into the women's game there. But then the likes of someone like Sophie Eccleston, who everyone wants to play in their team in every franchise everywhere in the world, same with the likes of Ash Gardner. 
if they have playing too many test matches, they're not going to be able to. Sophie Eccleston bowled almost 80 overs or something in the last few days. I don't I don't know how she's walking, but it's I'd be walking with sort of one chimpanzee arm hanging on the floor, sort of wheeling along. So I don't know what the physio has got to do between now and the T20 on Saturday, but it's going to be some magic spray involved, I think. Georgie, um, a very quick word on Tammy Beaumont. Just, you know, it's just remorseless. I mean, I had the TV on, I was watching. She, I was trying to think who she might have reminded me of in the men's game. Uh, but I think that her secret just seems to be simplicity. I mean, she does everything. She's got all the shots. She keeps it incredibly simple. I think Jonathan Trott came to mind, actually. Just, just remorseless. So a quick word about her. And then finish, if you could, on the way the Ashes now... Six games to go, and Australia only need to win two of them to retain the Ashes. Yeah, I mean, Tammy Beaumont, she was a pleasure to watch. She never really looked like getting out, obviously, until the very end. She was sort of losing partners around her at that time. She has, she just makes it look so natural. And I don't know if it's anything to do with perhaps her height, and it never looks like anything is too much of an effort. She's having to try too much to do anything. She can, you know, she's a 360 player. We've seen her play white ball stuff before. She can give it a bash if she wants to. But then at the same time, she knows when to rein it in. She does really well rotating that strike. She's an unbelievably fit player. You know, she prides herself on putting in that graft in the gym. She's really interesting to listen to, actually, because obviously she's, I think she's five foot one, five foot two. And she said uh, prior to the test match, you know, people might say, I don't look like an athlete because of my height and whatever. But actually... Cricket is built for people of all different shapes, sizes, and actually whatever suits you to play that game, it works for her being five foot, five foot one, five foot two, and she is unbelievably fit. She puts that in and she's just she's a pleasure to watch. It's never sort of, ooh, you know, you don't feel like you're sort of clenching your fists when you watch her do anything. You just feel really comfortable. And that's what's really nice um, to watch her play. So she's just a fantastic player. It'll be interesting to see how England go about whether they will bring her back into the T20 fold. She's missed out on that for the last year or so now. And she's actually on 99 T20 caps. So she just needs that one more for the 100. So I'm not sure whether they're going to go down that route yet because she missed out Commonwealth Games last year and the World Cup. So it will be interesting to see how that works. But then with this multi-series format, so we have the Test Match, three T20s, and three ODIs, and they're all worth two points each. And obviously, Australia are the holders at the moment, so they've got four points in the bag already. They need to win just two more. England actually need to win five of the six if they want to win the Ashes, and that's a big old ask, seeing as Australia. (laughs) I couldn't tell you how long it is that they've lost five games altogether. It's going to be going back quite a long way to when I had less grey hair, which I probably have more of than I did five days ago. Georgie Heath, I'm not sure the Aussie women have lost five games in total over the last 10 years, never mind five in a row. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was trying to be positive, OK? I wore my disco <laughs> T-shirt for a reason. Georgie Heath, thank you so much for joining us. I know it was a brilliant test match. I certainly loved watching it. Enjoy um, all the white ball stuff and we look forward to hearing more from you. Catch you guys later. Thanks for having me. That was Talk Sports uh, reporter Georgie Heath. Right, let's finish this section, Harmony, with a little bit of county news. Durham have signed Callum Parkinson and Colin Ackerman uh, after they've uh, announced they'll be leaving Leicestershire. And Leicester head coach Paul Nixon has been placed on gardening leave. And I don't know if you know the answer or not, um, or whether you're able to share it with us. 
But I, what is going on at Leicester? And and by the way, after all these years, why don't Leicester realise that without offering an explanation, they are merely inviting speculation of the most rife sort? Absolutely. I, I don't know. And obviously, we, we all speculate. And how many times have we said over the last few months and years that we've been doing this show, man, is that, you know, if you've got a coach as enthusiastic as Paul Nixon, you've got, You've got a good chance for young players to to sort of grow with confidence, grow into their education of the game, and and hopefully grow as as cricketers as well. And I think we've seen one or two come through. You know, a young man, we've got an eighteen year old in the in the Test squad, in the Ashes squad, uh, Rian Ahmed, that's come through through Leicester and through with Paul Nixon. So it's been a strange week. It'll be interesting to see when they do when the nuts and bolts do come out about it. Durham have got two good cricketers there. Colin Ackerman, who Durham are playing this week, and Ackerman's in the runs. Durham have got a massive score first innings. Ackerman, you know, he's got runs in in the first innings as well. Callum Parkinson's playing against his brother, and Matt Parkinson's playing for Durham, who's on loan. So Callum Parkinson's going to come over and take over from the spin bowling role. I think this kid's a good bowler. I really do. I think it's a great signing for Durham Cricket Club, Callum Parkinson. I, I think it's a fantastic one, but. I hope, and, and obviously Chris Wright's gone to he's gone to Sussex for next season. The wheels have they've not come off, they've blown off at Leicester, and we don't know the ins and outs. You're right, so you don't want to speculate, but that's a big call. If you know there's there's something underlining, then fine, you know, we'll we'll wait and see. But if it's just because, and I, I read some part of it said they haven't performed for ten years, and COVID before COVID it wasn't acceptable. If there, it is just on cricket and cricket in terms, that's a big call to 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 let go somebody who is enthusiastic as as Nico. So watch this space on on who comes in. I'd be intrigued to see who Claude Henderson, director of cricket, um, decides that to put in that that post, especially with three of their top players. Yeah, even though Ackerman and and and, and well Wright, especially who is a little bit older, I would love to be a fly on the wall in that boardroom. Okay, final word. Harmi goes to Middlesex, who I think had lost 13 in a row. And if you are going to break your duck, how about <laughs> doing it chasing 250 against the Golden Boys of Surrey? I mean, that's just hilarious. It was just ridiculous. But I, I remember, I remember sitting with Charlie, and Charlie, Charlie said, "Dad, you know, Middlesex are going to they're going to beat Surrey." I said, "Give over. They got 250." <laughs> he went, "No, no, they're going to get it." And I said to him, I said, in these t- in these games, I says, you either chase it and it's a close game, one down, two down, or you get bowled out for 120. And I was expecting, I was expecting to come back. He came in and said, Dad, Surrey's got 250. So we're playing 50 overs. He went, no, no, 20 over game. I was like, you are joking. And he's gone, no. Yeah. And then I was, I says, well, watch this, Middlesex to get bowled out for 110, 120. And he come in, he went, no, no, they're getting it. I was like, I couldn't <laughs> believe it. I really couldn't believe it. So watching some of the shots. It's fantastic. Good on you, Middlesex, for that. And I think it's been not a you know, not a bad week for them. You know, they did all right, and they're doing all right in the championship game. Uh, where 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 they'll finish with that one, I'm not so sure. But yeah, they've got their first win in the uh, in the in the T20 blast, um, chasing the record ever. I think it was a record ever run chase, 253. Well done. Very well done. Uh, you're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and the former number one bowler in the world, Steve Harmison. And it's time to turn our attention to the Cricket World Cup qualifiers and the story that, unfortunately, may well 
dominate not just uh, this competition, but um, I don't know, cricket in the Caribbean for a long, long time to come. The West Indies are qualified for the Super Sixes, but they lost a dramatic game to the Netherlands on a Super Over. They go into the Super Sixes with no points. Their chances of reaching the Cricket World Cup are technically, mathematically alive, but uh, negligible. An extraordinary story. The West Indies put 374 on the water, second 100 for Nicholas Puran. And the Netherlands chased down those runs. Um, and it was a tie. It went to a super over. Jason Holder bowled it. I know that we can be, all be smarty pants after the event. That surprised me. I didn't know that he was the best choice to bowl the super over. Logan van Beek struck 30 off the super over and then bowled and took two for eight. Logan van Beek. I don't know how welcome he's going to be in the Caribbean. We're joined now by Michelle St. Patrick Hewitt from the Caribbean Cricket Podcast to reflect on an extraordinary, extraordinary day. Darren Sammy said, after the defeat to Zimbabwe, I don't think we can sink much lower. I didn't think, I think they have, Mash. Yeah, um, some, uh, I try to specialise in finding the right words to explain the next rung that we fall on the ladder in, in, in West Indies cricket, but... This one's kind of left me a bit shell-shocked, but I, I want to say just off the bat that is still with full respect to the Netherlands because there, there are two sides in this game and the Netherlands still had to go some to chase down that 2-7-4. They should have won it inside 50 overs given the position they got themselves into with in the final over. I think they needed uh, 13, I think, of the final over, 5 or 5, um, and it would have been unlucky for them if West Indies had won that super over. Um, But at the same time, the the defeat speaks to what has been a long decline for for the West Indies men's cricket team. And I think I tweeted something out a short while ago, and I think it bears just kind of repeating on this platform. In 2017, we didn't qualify for the Champions Trophy. In 2019, we made it through to the OGI World Cup. And for those who paid attention to the World Cup qualifiers then, we didn't deserve to get through them. If it wasn't for rain and a really suspect... DRS call against Scotland, we probably wouldn't have made it to that World Cup anyway. And then we floundered in the World Cup in England as well. 2021, we only won one game in the T20 World Cup. 2022, we didn't even get into the main stage of the T20 World Cup. 2023, it looks to all intents and purposes, we're not going to make it to the LGI World Cup. We're not in the 2025 Champions Trophy either. So although on paper, it will surprise a lot of people and it will kind of be a major headline story, West Indies, lose to Netherlands, lost to Zimbabwe, unlikely to make it to the Old Jai World Cup. In the context of West Indies cricket, and particularly in white ball cricket, this is in fitting with the narrative. And the, the, I guess the wider question that people need to ask themselves is, and I feel like we've been asking for 20 years now, where do we go from here? What, what next? What now? I, I suspect it may well signal even more players deciding to go down a franchise route, because if there isn't even a quote-unquote national team that you can play for and do well with, why continue? Yeah, and I, I feel your frustration and feel your pain. You mentioned there, where does it go from Where does it go from here? Because they brought in Darren Sammy. You've had Phil Simmons. You've had some very, very good technical coaches. And this was like the feel-good factor. You know, like, you know bring back the feel-good factor. When the feel-good factor goes out the window as well, I think you asked the question to yourself there before. Where does the West Indies go from here? Yeah, most definitely. And there's almost an elephant in the room that nobody really wants to confront. 
And I, I, I kind of raise this sporadically. And I, I mean, I'll be in, intrigued to see what you both think about it. But do we finally get to a point where we accept that this particular generation of West Indian cricketers just aren't that good? And I know that sounds ridiculous. You've got Shea Hope in there with an OGI average of 50. Nicholas Piran is one of the most talented young players in the world. Uh, Shimron Hetmeyer is on the outside looking in because he has discipline problems. So there are individual talents there. Everyone will talk about a Jason Holder and Alzari Joseph. But when I say they're not that good, what I mean to say is the level of associate cricket and quote-unquote weaker full member sides, they've improved while we have either stood still or declined. And I've always said that if West Indies don't play at 100% against sides who we perceive to be weaker than ourselves, we will lose. Because give respect to the Dutch, the, 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 the Dutch had played in that ODI Super League and had got the experience of playing against all the four member nations, etc. And OK, yes, they didn't qualify, but they had that competitive um, element uh, within the Super League process. So I just think that West Indian players individually may well be talented, but as a collective against competitive sides who are on paper weaker than them, they can't match up. And maybe that speaks, Harmy, to a mental issue. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what I don't know what the missing link is. Uh, to be fair, Manners, I'm just jumping because it was going to be Manners asked the question. But when you we talked when I used to learn the football in terms, it was you know hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. And it looks as though in this situation, the talent has been blatant. It's been there staring in the face for many years in the West Indies. And it is it because they're not working hard. Is it because they're not challenged in the sort of the other arenas? But I would question with that because a lot of these players don't play domestic cricket in mm. the Caribbean. They play franchise cricket with a lot of good players. So how do they, how do you get your talented players to work hard? Because it seems to be the only time they don't work that hard is when they're put in in a, in a, in a Caribbean shirt. I mean that that's a that's a valid point to make because the evidence is there. <laughs> like even if we try to argue against it, the evidence is clearly there that when you put them together as a collective, something is missing. And as you said, as you alluded to, Sammy's come in to kind of give that feel good spirit. It's just worth me pointing out that yesterday um, or this week, Darren Sammy said that. He it was a very kind of, I don't know how many people picked up on it, but it was a quite significant comment when he said, this is a side I've inherited. And he made several kind of pointers to some of these players aren't going to carry on the ride with him. So that speaks to me that Sammy has potentially picked up already within his short stint in the job, that actually there's something at the core of all this that, that is part of the problem. So I would, I would expect out of these qualifiers... Uh, with injury on the horizon, England at the end of the year, don't be surprised if several of these players are no longer in the West Indies team if Darren Sammy gets his way. People like me and Harmy often speculate on the difficulties that must be inherent in bringing a team together from different countries. And we're talking about massively different cultures, countries. Mm. You know, I've used the analogy of an African 11, for example, you know, and I mean, that spans from Egypt to to Ghana and I mean you know it's crazy but I mean we've both been to the Caribbean we both toured there we've seen how different from a tourist perspective countries like Jamaica and Barbados and Guyana are and I I find it difficult to believe uh, or to agree with you that they're not a talented group but there's just no gel there's no there's just something's just not 
binding them together. Yeah. And if you can, if anyone has the answer to that, then probably they, <laughs> then they, they should probably be the West Indies men's head coach because several have tried in the last 20 years. The, the, the one common denominator in the last 20 years is that no one's been able to crack it. And we're talking about some of the greatest. In fact, actually, I, w- I was privileged enough to um, have a conversation with Brian Lara. And Brian Lara made a very personal point. He said, even when he was doing well, there, it was clear that there were structural in, there were structural issues within West Indies cricket. And he said he's been retired now for 16 years. And the only common denominator since he retired is that those structural deficiencies have continued. And all that's happened now is he didn't say this part. This is me adding this part that we don't we no longer have a Brian Lara talent. So so if you have the same structural deficiencies, but without a Brian Lara talent, not even a Chris Gale talent, then I think you're going those kind of holes are going to widen even more so um, and become apparent to the to the wider cricketing uh, public. Mash, I feel like we're stealing your expertise for our podcast. Um, so so the least we can do is um, ask you to tell us what's coming up on yours, the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. I know you've been doing <laughs> some high-profile interviews and you did tweet uh, to say that you were going to shut it down um, uh, <laughs> in... in in, in sympathy or protest at what's happened at the World Cup qualifiers, but what what have you got coming up? And I know you're not going to shut it down, really. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it will stay alive uh, for the short while, certainly. But um, interestingly enough, actually, our next guest, um, which we had delayed putting this episode out, but it seemed really, it seems like we better put it out now. But um, we had an interview uh, with the, the new president of Cricket West Indies, yeah. Dr. Kishore Shallow, who has taken over. Um, from Ricky Skerritt and funnily enough we, we he came to London during the um, World Test Championship final and we were able to sit down with him and have a really in-depth conversation about the state of the game in the Caribbean kind of his manifesto for change and it's quite interesting we spoke about the upcoming World Cup qualifiers and what that might mean for West Indies cricket if we made it or if we didn't make it so if I am plugging that that's the thing I should plug because I think in light of what's now happened, that's probably an episode a lot of people want to listen to. Will cricket survive in the Caribbean, international cricket? Do you know what, man? As I'm going to put this back to you, will cricket survive in South Africa? What, if they didn't reach the World Cup? Yeah. <laughs> Touch and go. In that, in that case, that's the answer for me as well. <laughs> <laughs> I always see a parallel between what would happen in South Africa and what would happen um, in, in the West Indies. I think if it was, I think it. Let's not let's remember there's a financial implication to us not getting there as well. Um, so, yeah, touch and go seems about right. But um, who knows? As we always say, there's never a dull day in West Indies cricket. Who knows what's on the horizon? Michelle St. Patrick Hewitt from the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. What an absolute pleasure, as always. And I'm sorry that it's in such unhappy circumstances, but... You know what? Go the men in orange. They've knocked South Africa out of the 2020 World Cup in Australia, and now they've knocked the West Indies out of the World Cup in Harare. Indeed, indeed. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Well, the one consolation for Irish cricket is that uh, the West Indies debacle has has relegated um, Ireland's dismal performance in the qualifiers to um, the second paragraph. Uh, But really, um, we're joined once again by Nathan Johns of the Irish Times, that was unexpected. I mean, I, I had Ireland a, a really good outside bet, actually, to, to reach the final and, and make the World Cup. But not getting to the Super Sixes and being turned over by Oman, you must be bitterly disappointed. 
Yeah, that's 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 one way of putting it for sure. I think my personal expectations, and I think these were reasonably widely shared, was that they'd be competitive and get to the Super Sixes, but that ultimately, you know, Sri Lanka are probably the best team in the competition, and Zimbabwe at home playing in front of ten thousand at HSC every time, and you know those amazing scenes that we've seen. Um, having seen a little bit of that when Ireland were there in January for for a bilateral series, I thought that would just be a little bit too much. They they'd go down, they'd, they'd be a gallant defeat to Zimbabwe in the in the Super Sixes that would cost them, but otherwise they'd be competitive. But to um, the, the long and the short of it is, they spent four years prioritising white ball cricket or having decided not to play any red ball in 2019, and they've ended up in a position where they're no better off than Oman or and Scotland at a, at a qualifier. It's um, these things are never as simple as that. I don't think Ireland is necessarily a worse side than, than those two, but to end up losing to those two and, and not even getting out of the first stage, given everything that's happened, given all the talk about pinnacle events and how they risked annoying the MCC and, and Lords by saying that this wasn't as, that test match wasn't as important as the qualifiers, to then go and do this is um, it's it's as bad as it gets, and it's as as bad as Irish cricket has has been in, in recent memory. Yes, and I was in Ireland on Wednesday and Thursday, and. It was obviously Wednesday was the day where the game, the close game against Scotland, and there was some, there was a few disgruntled fans close by the golf course telling me that the Irish team weren't very good. What's the reaction been like back in Ireland? Yeah, it's it's bitter to to say the least. Um, I would say, from what I've seen, the majority of the criticism has been deflected at the powers that be and and the, at board level rather than at the players level. I would share some of those sentiments, as you could probably guess, by saying that talk of pinnacle events and, and prioritizing white ball cricket only to end up in this position, things things off the pitch haven't, and strategy-wise, have, have gone awry. I still think the players deserve some some criticism. I mean, there's a lot of batters in particular. Uh, you look at the top three that have, have drastically underperformed. You look at the likes of Paul Sterling, Andrew, Andrew Balberni. They opened with Andy McBride as a bit of an experiment that didn't really go to plan, but doesn't matter what's going on off the pitch if your top three aren't scoring any runs at a critical tournament, and especially when you've got the captain and at Balbirnie and someone like Sterling, and we all know how important Sterling has been to Irish cricket for so long now. He's not as important as he used to be, but he's still a pretty big player for them. It doesn't matter what's going on off the pitch when your top three aren't scoring any runs. You're going to struggle. I don't think this is a poor Irish side. I think there have been worse Ireland sides in recent memory, but it just feels like all the, the majority of the players have all lost form at the same time, and that hasn't happened for... For, for as long as I've been watching the team. I don't want to ask you to relive a moment of horror, but the Scotland game, what were Ireland again? Was 60 for five or, or, or 70 for five, making 280, Curtis Camp for 100. That's good, right? That shows fight. Of course, they lost by one wicket in the end, but that that was pivotal. Massively. Uh, 280 was at 286, I think is what they ended up on. Um, just double checking what you were saying there. 33 for four, 70 for five. Yeah, so to, to, that was an incredible innings by, by Camfer. He loves playing against Scotland. He did something very similar in the T20 World Cup. If you can remember, Ireland were on the brink of elimination and him and Dockerell again, and, and Dockerell also scored some runs this time, saved them. And it looked like history repeated itself. It looked like Scotland just, there's something about this partnership. Scotland couldn't do anything with them. And that was Camfer's best innings of his career by by far. Um, and Ireland looked in pole position. I mean, you look at the last 10 overs, I think Josh Little bowls the 47th over and Scotland needs 11 runs and over and you're backing Ireland at that stage. It was him and Mark Watt. They were eight down. Um, one big over of 20 plus 
And then that was the game. Um, Little came back and actually bowled reasonably well in his final over. I think he only went for eight or nine, uh, which you would take at that stage of a game. But one massive over cost Ireland. And in hindsight, I think you can say that they bowled well for nine of the last 10 overs. But when you've got a side eight down, chasing 280 for a considerable period of time, you can't let the number, well, there were seven down. You can't let Mark Watt, the number nine batter, get 47 and expect to, to win a game. You need to bowl sides out like that. I think as they, batting sides when chasing, they always say, take it deep, don't they? Whereas a bowling side, you just you don't let them get anywhere near that stage because God knows what can happen in the last few overs. So Ireland couldn't couldn't bowl them out. And they had the number nine in for a considerable period of time in Mark Watt. And they couldn't take the wickets they needed to, to polish the game off as much as they bar one over. They bowled reasonably well. And what... What now for Irish cricket? Uh, it's very hard to keep up with the international fixture list. Um, uh, and I, I may have imagined this, but I, I, I thought I saw that Ireland have got a three-match T20 series against India coming up in, in August. Is that right? Yeah, so August the 18th, that starts. Um, before that, they've got the 2024 World Cup, uh, T20 World Cup qualifiers. Um, so they travel up to Scotland uh, the end of July, I believe that is. So that should be smooth sailing because it's two places up for grabs and, and themselves in Scotland are the two best teams in there. Uh, some people are looking at the fact that Italy are getting some county pros and some decent yeah. Australian pros with passports in. So there could be a bit of a heist there. But if that happened and Ireland didn't qualify for that tournament, that would be complete disaster strike and complete heads on the block time. Um, they're not quite there yet, but... Uh, look, they will not have made it. They should make the 2027 50 over World Cup because, of course, that expands back up from 10 teams. But when that happens, that would have been 12 years without uh, 50 over World Cup cricket for Ireland. And you consider what made Irish cricket. It was big 50 over World Cup wins against Pakistan, against England, against West Indies. Um, and for an entire generation of cricketers, 12 years to go by without without experiencing that, it's it's brutal. Financially, it's brutal. You know, they miss out on the million dollar participation fee and all the sponsorship money that comes from from Irish cricket uh, from World Cup cricket and this is Cricket Ireland who has a five million quid uh, ICC loan so they've, that's got to start to be paid back next year and they can't pay back a fifth of that in one go which they would have liked to have done if they qualified so financially it's it's devastating and equally from a broadcasting what's the word uh, vision you know, access being visible in the wider sporting public in Ireland World Cups are always when Ireland is Cricket Ireland is, is on the showcase at home and they haven't got that. And 50 over World Cups probably do resonate a little bit more um, to people probably because of those big wins. Like I said, 2011, 2011, Bangalore, all that. So it, it's huge, both financially and from the point of view of being in the shop window. Um, it's it's absolutely devastating. You look at someone like Harry Tector, seventh best ODI batter in the world. He's going to have to wait now until he's, tw- until he's 26 to play, in a, to play in a 50 over World Cup, which just doesn't sound right at all. Nathan, final word, and I'll take a yes or a no. Is Irish cricket happy? I mean, I, generally, I mean, I think back to Graham Ford's departure and he gave the impression that, you know, that, that I don't know, that it wasn't particularly happy. I don't know, there's administrative backstabbing or a lack of trust or, I mean, we all sort of want Irish cricket to be pulling in the same direction. No, it, it's not happy. The beauty of Irish cricket is that they've always produced players or found players who are capable of individual performances that every now and then gives them some big wins and big series wins that makes everyone feel very happy and it makes the wider cricketing world very happy. Like you said there, everyone wants Irish cricket to do well. I don't know now because the new coach, he's only been in there for, well, he's been there for two years now, but I'm not 100% sure how he feels, but you mentioned Graham Ford. There was this cloud of lack of trust perhaps between between him and, and the powers that be. 
over the issues that face Irish cricket, there is a perception that, you know, there's some financial, there's some problems that have happened. You know, there was money spent on a training facility that, that took years to materialize. And you know, was that money well spent? And there's a few things like that, the, the, the never ending debate about how much money are they going to put into a stadium that they don't have yet that do they or do don't they need so that behind the scenes there's always a question of well, look when you're a full member that has worse facilities than some associate members in terms of training and stadium facilities there's always going to be criticism and i think as long as that criticism exists and as long as people in the high performance side of things aren't getting what they want in terms of practice pitches training facilities playing facilities there's always going to be friction and um that friction comes out every time they do these big games like this because it's it's easy to turn around and say we've crap facilities, so therefore we're not going to do well on the good on the world stage. And they probably do rely on special talents every now and then, baiting them out of trouble. Nathan Johns, always a pleasure. Fantastic. We learn something. We learn lots new every time we talk to you. Thanks so much for your time once again. Thanks, guys. Nathan Johns from uh, the Irish Times. Uh, right, you've been listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. Uh, and if you've missed any of the show or you wish to catch up, you can download the podcast from the following on feed now, available via the free TalkSport app or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back at the same time next week to look back at the second Ashes test from Lords. But for now, you've been listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.